0: Well, let's pray, and uh, we'll get started, okay? Well, uh, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy, giving us the strength to be here today, Lord, for uh, enabling us to gather as your people and to learn and to study together and grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, as we continue to go through this subject that we've been tackling here in Sunday School the subject of Islam, uh, that you would give us, um, Lord, minds to apprehend the information to be able to digest this and to be able to divulge it to our Muslim neighbor. If we have the opportunity to do that, Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom uh, and the knowledge and the strength and the zeal and the compassion to share with Muslims uh, the wonderful truth of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, guide our discussion now and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I did bring some show and tell. Just a couple quick little books here. Um, uh, uh, The reason I chose these is because they're all sort of specific uh, to certain areas. Erwin Lutzer, his book, The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent. Uh, What this book is going to do is um, it's going to give you uh, yeah, the historical foundations of Islam is going to tackle th- the theology of Islam uh, and the, the, the crucial doctrines of Islam. But what I, why I like this by Lutzer is because um, he gets into some of the modern or contemporary issues that we're facing so that you'll be kind of conversant with some of the, c- the the organizations that are prevalent in America right now, like the MSA or CARE, you know, and other uh, uh, organizations other, uh, uh, groups that are, you know, Muslim Brotherhood funded type groups and things like that, that are in our culture, in our society right now. And so he tackles a lot of that, kind of helps you to really understand the Muslim mind. That's what, I, that's what I like about this book. Helps you to understand where they're coming from. Uh, j- like, for example, um, you know, the, um, the Muslim understands that the world is ultimately a mosque. I don't know if you knew that, but they view the whole planet as God's mosque. And um, they view uh, some mosques as being in a place of triumph and peace and other mosques or living in God's mosque is in a state of war. And uh, so America would be that part of God's mosque that is in a state of war. That's the way they view (laughs) uh, Islam and, you know, their Islamic life. So just things like that to really get into the mind of a Muslim, how he thinks. And then also, if you don't have James White's new book, you need to get this book. It's very, very good for a lot of reasons. It's going to give you uh, more of like a presentation of Islam, yes, but he focuses more on the textual issues with the Quran and how to uh, understand the Quran, how to interpret the Quran in certain ways, Uh, certain important things, like what we talked about last week with when were certain chapters written, right? First Medina period, second Medina period, or Meccan period, things like that. He's going to tackle those kinds of things in here. And of course, it's James White, so you know, you can't lose. Uh, And before before I get to this one, you had a question, Crystal? The first one is The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent. The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent by Erwin Lutzer. Okay, endorsed by Al Mohler. (laughs) And then this one by John Gilchrist. I like this because John Gilchrist in this little rare book, this is a South African uh, author, and uh, I like it because it's kind of like underground. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you're not going to get this on the top 10, you know, Amazon list or whatever. You know, Crossway is probably not going to pick this up. You know, uh, this is really uh, some pretty hardcore information in here. And his books are pretty hardcore. Uh, and the reason I like this, is because Gilchrist kind of goes through some of the main arguments that Muslims are going to present to you. Uh, arguments about the Trinity, arguments about the corruption of the Bible, arguments about uh you know the deity of christ those kinds of things and how to flip that back on them using their quran and their sources it's really good so uh facing the muslim challenge by john gilchrist and anything by gilchrist is going to be relatively good Theolog don't get your theology from gilchrist i don't have time to explain all that but just you know this is not your theologian you don't go to him for your theology but he's good for what he does which is how to refute islam so with that, uh, we've been talking about <coughs> Islam. And um, today what I want to look at is really the historical uh, roots, I guess that's the shortest word I can use, the historical roots of Islam, essentially talking about, uh, you know, where did, Islam come from? What was the cradle in which Islam arose? Those types of things, where it was born, what what was going on at the time. Now before I do that, I wanna run you through something very quickly, okay? I want to talk about, uh, very quickly, Muslim source material. I wanted to do this last week and we couldn't do it, so. um, Sources. So if you're studying Islam, if you're a Muslim, What are the sources that you use and why do you use them? Okay, so number one source. Does anybody know what it is? (laughs) That's right. So the Quran, the second source. uh, Maybe these two two are uh, in terms of importance. Quran, the most important, it is the word of Allah, right? This is for Muslims. Number two is the Hadith. Who said that? GG? All right, you're paying attention. Hadith. And what is the hadith again? The had what's that? The traditions of of Muhammad. Things that Muhammad either did or said um, that are not recorded in the Quran. Uh, this is a very important connection here. Quran hadith. Very important because without the hadith. The Quran is a pretty nonsensical book. Uh, if you just picked up the Quran, you're walking down the sidewalk, and lo and behold, there's a Quran sitting on the sidewalk somewhere. You just pick it up and start reading it. Well, it is not in any fashion uh, uh, similar to the Bible. You know, you can read the Bible. You pick up the Bible. You're walking down the street. Never heard of a Bible. You pick it up and look. Where does it begin? At the beginning. well that is not how the Quran begins see the Quran assumes that you have a background in certain traditions Jewish Christian uh, those types of traditions and many 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 others including including uh, 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 some of the uh, Gnostic Gospels that were in existence uh, Coloridian cults that were in ancient Arabia that deified Mary and things like that Catholicism they assume that you have sort of a background in those types of things, as well as what we're gonna talk about today with pre-Islamic Arabia and what was going on there in Mecca, okay, but uh, these are really interrelated. Uh, If you talk to a Muslim and you say, are you familiar with the Hadith? How many of you have done that and had a Muslim say, I'm only Quran, I, I only care about the Quran. Have you had that? You've never had that? I've had that happen to me countless times. Where I ask it, you know, what do you think of the hadith? It says, uh, you know, hadith, you know, y- you know, Quran, you know, I'm only follow the Quran. Well, whenever they claim that, then you ask them questions like, oh, really? Well, does the Quran tell you where the Quran came from? Does the Quran tell you um, who uh, or, or how to enforce Sharia law? Right? Some of these. Does the Quran tell you where Muhammad came from, who his parents were, and where he grew up, and what tribe he belonged to? Anything like that? Well, of course not. It doesn't go into detail like that on certain historical things. But the Hadith does, and the Hadith will explain a lot of that. Um, which groups are the Quran only? Like which I've I've heard it from from either one, but mainly the Shiite will a lot of times say that because they they know that. Shiites will say, well, when you you mention Hadith, you're probably referring to Buhari, right? Well, a lot of Shiites don't really recognize Buhari, so they have their own Hadith literature. Uh, Buhari is more of a Sunni idea. Remember, there is a 30-70 split in Islam. 30% are what's called Shiites, right? And uh, 70%, um, uh, sorry, Sunni. I woke up this morning and uh, I couldn't move. My neck went out and uh, I couldn't even roll out of bed. So, you know, I'm trying to to move slowly and it's affecting my writing a little bit, but we'll get there. So 30% Shiite, 70% Sunni in the world. That's essentially what you're looking at, okay? But um, go back to the sources. So the Hadith is the second most authoritative writing And there are two Hadith authors, there are two Hadith authors that are very important for you to know. The first one is a gentleman by the name of Bukhari, or Buhari, and the next one is a a gentleman by the name of Muslim, Sahih Muslim, tradition, the tradition of Sahih Muslim, uh, uh, Sahih al-Buhari, the tradition of Buhari. Uh, these are the main authoritative sources for the traditions of Islam, Buhari and Muslim, okay? And uh, there's a lot of information in there. Bu- I have Buhari. Buhari is a na- nine-volume set. I was reading it the other night. I was reading my wife to sleep, reading hadiths out of Buhari to her. <laughs> and she's telling me, no, no, I not want nightmares when I go to bed. But uh, I was reading her I was reading her uh, the... Had- the one of the hadiths, one of the traditions, and talked about the death of Muhammad, and it said when when the when the Prophet died, it says um, he did not leave, he did not leave any slaves, he did not leave a any woman slaves, making a distinction because the woman slaves would have been really his wives, some you know could have been concubines and things, and he did not leave any money and um, all he left was his white donkey and a piece of land that he donated to charity. That's a hadith. That's what it is. Almost kind of senseless ramblings to us, you know what I mean? But to Muslims, they treasure this kind of insight into the life of the prophet. Okay, so... uh, So Does that mean he didn't have anything when he died, or he just didn't pass it on, or what? He's saying that that's all he left, was just... uh, You know, all he had was just that plot of land, a white donkey. I think uh, what they're trying to show is how humble he was, you know, the humility. They don't all have to do with Muhammad, but, I mean, mainly, yes. Uh, Some of them will have to do with his... So, in a sense, yeah, I mean, they do have to do with Muhammad, ultimately. But they cover so many. I mean, nine volumes of Buhari. I mean, you get lost in that stuff, you know. And remember that Buhari took... 600,000 traditions, like the one I just narrated to you right now, 600,000 of those, he took and gathered all of those traditions and he boiled them down to 6,000. So again, that tells you that from all the Hadith literature that was originally there, 1% was deemed Reliable. That's not good. <laughs> What's that? Exactly. <laughs> they 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 have a a, a name for the traditions um, that's very important uh, that helps with the process. The word is Isnad. Isnad. And Isnad, the Arabic word for chain. So what they're saying is, depending on how reliable the isnad is, the chain of tr- of transmission, the chain of tradition, that would affect whether or not it, w- it was considered to be a reliable hadith. So they have all these factors involved. Okay, doesn't matter. Take your have your hadith. It doesn't really matter. Anybody want to leave this up here? Anybody need this? Let me know if I erase something that you're trying to jot down. For those of you that are. For those of you that don't have photographic memories and you're taking notes, um (laughs) Uh, because I know it can be a lot of information, but uh, okay, so fine, have your hadith, that's fine, Um, because we can use the hadith against the Quran, because there are many things that are written in the hadith that are not good for the Quran. Uh, I would say the most important of all would be (coughs) the composition of the Quran. If we go to the hadith literature it tells us the process by which the Quran came to be compiled and the evidence and the statements that are made there are not good they're not good statements it's not it's not good uh it's not a good uh, textual tradition that you find in Buhari for example I tell Muslims some of you have heard me do this would you ever burn the Quran Sailah, you know <laughs> they you know they never you know you almost gotta be careful even asking that question. Um and then I said, well, then why did the original Muslims burn the Quran? What? They didn't burn the Quran? What are you talking? They want to pull their hair out by this time, right? And you just tell them, Well, if you look at Sahih al-Buhari, if you read, I think it's volume six of Buhari, in there it says that um, the third successor to Muhammad, uh, a gentleman by the name of Uthman, directed the secretary, Zayed Ibn Tabit, to collect all the manuscripts and to burn the manuscripts that did not agree with his codices. So why are Muslims burning the Quran? Uh, oh, oh, no, you gotta understand, that was because they were trying, to. you know, there's no good answer to that, but anyway. Um, let's move on because there's there's other sources that are really important. Next one is um, the Sunnah. The Sunnah is not so much a uh, not so much a document as much as it is kind of a theology. The Sunnah si- simply just means the trodden path. the trodden path by who? Who trodden the path? Muhammad. So the Sunnah, is the path that Muhammad walked. So the Sunnah has to do with Muslims following in the example of Muhammad, right? Uh, You'll hear a lot of Muslims say that, you know. The Quran is our book and the Sunnah, right, is our way of life. We want to follow the example of Muhammad, right? Um, Obviously, you know what happened in France. How many of you don't know what happened in France this week? That means you are completely disconnected from reality. <laughs> you are off the grid, so to speak. <laughs> Kim, you told me you got off the grid a while ago, so that's not a surprise. But uh, it's a good thing. That's right. <sighs> I know, right? Well, in France, something very terrible happened. Um, three Muslim jihadists um, went to uh, seek revenge for the pro- from the prophet for the prophet Muhammad, uh, they attacked a, uh, a, a satirical cartoonist. Well, no, that was the cartoonist. The fourth one, Mike, was the other one uh, that went into the kosher deli. But the three Muslims that went to Charlie Hebdo, which stands for Charlie Weekly, it's a weekly satirical cartoon magazine that is, you know, uh, the magazine is reprehensible. Uh, they attack politics and religion and it's reprehensible. It has all sorts of uh, just you know, sexually explicit imagery and things like that. They, just, they go out of their way to offend as many people as they can in a satirical fashion in the name of freedom of speech and that they're allowed to do this. Okay, so France tolerates them, but Muslims don't. So they, you have drawings of the Prophet Muhammad and compromised pictures and th- bla- what they consider very blasphemous and offensive things. Well, guess what? Three guys show up at your doorstep with AK-47s, and 12 people are now dead. And uh, <coughs> they hunted these three. One, one turned himself in. The other two were killed. Two brothers were killed. And then immediately after that, in a synchronized attack, uh, not far from Charlie Hebdo's headquarters, there was another uh, jihadist who went into a kosher deli and abduct, uh, took... Uh, I don't know, I've heard different reports, maybe 16 to 20 people hostage, walked in, immediately shot four people, and said that he was he was there uh, for the same reason that the Sh- uh, Charlie H- uh, Hibdo terrorists were there to seek revenge for the honor of the Prophet Muhammad, that they had avenged his honor because it's all about the Sunnah. It is all about the Hadith. It is all about the Quran. Uh, a lot of these Muslims, uh, you know, they... W- w- we're, we you know, the liberal media, and I don't want to make this a dun, dun, you know, uh, you know, uh, breaking news here at Heritage Grace, you know, but uh, at the same time, the liberal media is running out of excuses. That it's oh, its just these lone wolves doing this all on their own, you know. The guy in Australia—did you guys see what happened there in Australia? Um, they, the, the media got the script perfectly you know, consistent every time, you know, he was a self-appointed cleric. Anything to paint him in a light that he is just kind of out on his own on the fringe, he's just a wacko that did something on his own. Well, how many of these guys are on their own? (laughs) They're not on their own. As a matter of fact, the the, the four terrorists that did this in France actually um, uh, were trained by al-Qaeda in Yemen. Al-Qaeda took responsibility of everything, so... There you go. They're following the sunnah. The, the, they're following the, the the way of the prophet. And I'll give you some other uh, important uh, sources. Okay, um, I'm not in a hurry uh, because by the end of this thing, I had somebody in our church tell told me, you know, take your time with this with Islam. Uh, get into detail. Give us the goods. You know. And I don't know if I can deliver. I'll try, but. Uh, I think it is important for us to go slow and to digest uh, some of these things. Um, also, this is anoth- another uh, important. The taba, uh, tabakat. The tabakat is a collection of writings. Many people have never heard of the tabakat. The tabakat is a collection of writings that was written by some of the original pious Muslims right after or during the age of the time of Muhammad. These are political leaders, military leaders, pious men, men of high, basically heroes of the faith that Muslims aspire to be like. Okay, so the Tabakat is a compendium of those types of things and a lot of their names are found back in the Isnads of the traditions of the Hadith. Remember I told you there's a chain of tradition? What do I mean by that? So what they'll say is that this individual told this individual and this individual told this individual that Muhammad did this, 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 and that. That's what it is. And then these individuals are found in the tabakat. These are the heroes of the Islamic faith. you know. And Muslims study this stuff and they identify with some of these pioneer Muslims and they aspire to be like them. And many of them were military generals who defeated the enemies of Allah at different battles. Um, okay, uh, the next one. The next one is the next body of, tra- of tradition or the next body of, of literary sources for Islam is the fiqh. The fiqh. What is the fiqh? The fiqh is literally the, the science of how do you do Sharia law it is the theology of law of Islamic law it is bringing together the whole body of Islamic law as Sharia and then there's different schools of thoughts on different schools of thought on how do you do Sharia many of them contradict each other many of them end up in you know wild uh, controversies and what do you call it? Um, uh, all of these sorts of divisions among Muslims that they have their v- their version of Sharia, and others have you know uh, different sects within that. Uh, the 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 majority view is the Hanafi. The Hanafi movement, and all of these are representative of individual scholars in Islam. The Hanafi uh, school is the majority among muslims and then you have other ones you have maliki uh, uh hanbali and shafi those are kind of the 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 majority schools and you can look it up uh, if just just write down in your notes or just make a mental note you know uh feek. just put down fiq and the major schools of of thought and you'll get all the information that you want remember you can go to uh answering-islam.org dash. and you can get uh, exhaustive information on Islam. You know what's so wonderful about this is that when you're studying Islam, um, you can use their index. They have an index on their website and you can scroll through. It's an A to Z index and you can, let's say you're looking up, the you want to know about the feek. Well, you can go to the letter F, scroll down to "feek," click on it, and an article will probably pop up defining it, giving you more information on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, don't want to get too caught up on that. Next, yes, sir. Is, is there a, a book or maybe two volumes or something that's going to have the and the sort of like, a, like a, a boiled down crystallization of all of these sources or at least? No. Ideas these these stand alone, uh, the Hadith, Buhari, Muslim. Even these, even these, just within the Hadith, these stand by themselves. You know, they're their own individual. <coughs> just let me know if you need it. If you need to uh, uh, need me to write, uh, you know, put something back up there for you. The next one is the Sirah, <coughs> Sirah or Sirat. Uh, Sira would be uh, singular, surat would be plural. And the Sira is very important because the Sira has to do with the biography of Muhammad. So this is what we're talking about now, a biography, a biographical sketch by uh, a a given Muslim scholar, and there are some very important ones. This is, uh, the first one would be by, uh, oops. My little thing. Ibn, so whenever you see Ibn, that just means son of, right, that's, that's their little bre- abbreviation, so Ibn, and then the main one is Ibn Ishaq. Ibn Ishaq, these are the names you have to remember, and then Ibn Hisham, Ibn Hisham. So Ibn Ishaq is known to have compiled the first sirah of Muhammad, the first biography of Muhammad. The problem is, is that we no longer have the document, we no longer have the writing, the book, the sirah of Ibn Ishaq. What we have now is a redaction written by Ibn Hisham. Okay, you're talking here, uh, uh, you're talking here, oh, late late eighth century, okay, so in the high sevens, right? That's where that's kind of where where we're at now. And so these guys put together uh, uh, many, many centuries ago a biography detailing the life of Muhammad. This is very important to Muslims. And uh, the Sirat sort of pulls from the hadith literature. It pulls from other sources to fill out its information on, uh, on the life of muhammad okay uh, and this is what uh, this is what muslims love to read and to study at least those that are devout they read the sirah they read the sunnah they read the they live out the sunnah they read the hadith they read all these uh, the tabakat the tabakat you know the uh, the old generals that inspire them to, especially for the jihadists, the jihadists are very serious about this. This is not, you know, your typical Muslim that you meet on the streets. Really, is not gonna, you know, they're really not gonna dive into these sources. But those that are very serious about Islam, they are. Um, I told you about the uh, the university, the university university in Cairo, um, uh, uh, Al Azar, Al Azar. Is the biggest school, biggest university on earth? Uh, I think it has something like a hundred and seventy thousand Muslim students. Well, many of those guys are very smart. They have PhDs. They're getting PhDs in, this, in Islamic law. They're, you know, they're very smart people, and they study all these sources. And many of them are terrorists. Um, remember when the World Trade Center was bombed the first time? Remember, what year what was that under Clinton in the 90s? It was bombed from underneath, and there was smoke coming out. Uh, some of you guys too young to remember or remember all that, but um, that was done by a professor of Al-Azhar. He, te- he is a professor teaching Islamic law at Al-Azhar. These are not dumb people, right? And what does the media want us to believe? Oh, these are just fringe, lunatic people that don't know what they're talking about. You know, been smoking too much hashish or something. <laughs> when in reality, they're brilliant people that are that are doing this. Okay, let's go to the next source. So, Daniel, can yes, sir. Pretty general question. Yep. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be the Wahhabis and the Salafis, you know. The Wahhabis and the Salafis are those sects that interpret all of this literature the most literally and the most consistently. And they have a very comprehensive worldview. So, yeah, sadly, you know. More likely for violence. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Is there any justification for allegorically interpreting the text? Allegorically? Yeah, just kind well, of sp- yeah. in a spiritual sense. The majority of Muslims don't like that. Um, that's actually a, a sect of Islam that would interpret the Quran more uh, on a spiritual level. Um, the Sufis, mm-hmm. it's called Sufism, more of a mystical sect of Islam. Uh, they are rejected by the majority of Muslims. Sunnis and Shiites do not appreciate Sufism. Yeah, b- s- because they don't take a lot of these things literal. That's right. So um, the next one is the tafsir. What is the tafsir? The tafsir are the commentaries, the ancient commentaries. The ancient commentaries that was that that were written on the text of the Quran. Okay. And there are some very important people that wrote uh, the tafsirs. The first one would be probably maybe the most a uh, famous tafsir is one by a gentleman by the name of Al-Tabari 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 is a 10th century scholar that <coughs> that wrote uh, extensively voluminously on the Quranic text so if they have questions about the Quran and what it's teaching in a text maybe there's a question about a certain verse a certain chapter just like we kind of would go, you know, we go to our, you know, study Bibles, we go to the ESV study Bible, we go to the John MacArthur study Bible, we go to a commentary to, to get a scholarly opinion on the text, right? So to the Muslims, they go to, to al Tabari to get a scholarly opinion that goes all the way back to the 10th century. That's really old, right? And then the other one very, is a, a gentleman by the name of Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir, so this is 10th century, right? This is 13th century. So these are the biggest These are the biggest names in terms of the tafsir. Al-Tabri, Ibn Kathir, okay? You have a question? Yeah, just a real quick maybe. maybe. Um, <laughs> what do you make out of the fact that, like, James White points out the fact that none of the commentaries ever commented on the, the, the few eyes that talk about Jesus not really being crucified. And he says, like, nobody no early commentators commented on that. Like, what's he saying? That maybe that wasn't... Really an or, an better, original. Or what? Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying? Yeah, I, I, I don't know uh, as far as that goes. But what is interesting to note about, uh, especially al uh this is a very interesting point, is that prior to the commentary by al um uh, there was no Muslim tradition that spoke about the corruption of the Biblical text. I think I've th- we talked about this before, but the, the, the Hebrew word for the manuscripts of the Bible, right, is mushaf. Uh, uh, mushaf, there you go. Mushaf is referring to the manuscript, the text itself, not the doctrine, that's something else, but the text itself. Well, prior to Al-Tabari in the 10th century, Muslims were not attacking the Mus'af of the Bible. They don't. They don't attack the textual tradition of the Bible. What they attack is what the what the Muslim or what the uh, uh, the people of the book, the Jews and the Christians, supposedly have done with the text of the Bible, uh, misinterpreted. They became misguided. So that's interesting. That it's not until after Al-Tabari that uh, the claims of biblical corruption become to you know start to surface in islamic tradition right and now you have all these muslims right telling you oh bible's corrupt bible's corrupt right it was corrupted right and they even try to adopt liberal type thinking so you have a guy like uh, shabir ali oh and guess who his favorite liberal is Bart Ehrman, he was a, Bart Ehrman made it into my sermon today, so you'll hear a little bit about him, but uh, Bart Ehrman, you know what I mean? Why? Because he was, he's a textual critic that went apostate, who now spends his time uh, uh, just undermining and trying to attack the tenacity of scripture, and so they feel like, oh, perfect, you know, we have one of their own, this guy was an inside guy, and now he's attacking the scriptures, and so Bart Ehrman says, you know, is one of the favorite lines of Muslims now. But uh, prior to El Tabari, there wasn't, there wasn't any uh, textual, uh, any, any problems with the texts of either the Tanakh, the Old Testament, or the Injil, the New Testament, for Muslims. Um, okay, last one. Last one, and then we'll see where we go from here. <coughs> Everybody got all that? Any questions, comments, statements? Um, uh, maybe the last source that you need to know about is the Tariq, uh, the Tariq. The Tariq is the histories of Islam, the histories of Islam. These are compilations by Muslims who uh, who take parts of the Sirah, parts of the Hadith, and the life of Muhammad and they compile a history of Islam because you have to understand for Muslims, remember I told you this last time, we have, uh, B C, right, and we have A D, right. Uh, unless you're liberal, then you have C E. <laughs> Anybody knows what C E means? You re- uh, uh, what is that? You know what I mean? Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, era of who? You know what I mean? Anyway, huh? The last days. <laughs> yeah, the last days. Eschatological comment. Common eschatology. <laughs> okay. For Muslims, they have, they have. B-H and a, uh, A-H. Remember I told you this last time? The H stands for the Hijra. The Hijra. The Hijra is the moment Muslims believe was the founding moment of Islam. This is when Islam started. You ask a Muslim, when did, when did Islam start? Hijra. The Hydra is the flight in the night of the Meccan desert, where m- Muslims from Mecca and Muslims from Medina met in the wi- it met in the desert, in victory, and triumph over their nomadic enemies, and they founded the religion at this time. Six twenty two, A.D. Yes, sir. This is the histories of Islam, the histories of Islamic uh, civilization. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Why did you call it the flight? Is that what you said? Flight. The heat. The Arabic word is flight. This is the flight in the night. This is Muslims flying to. That's the way they look at it, you know, into the Arabian desert to meet up with other Muslims from Mecca and Medina, and therefore, that is when Islam yeah, begins. 622? AD. AD. Yeah. AD. Yeah, remember <coughs> um how would they title that in the AH BH? Zero. <laughs> okay. Not one. Remember Muhammad was born in 570, he died in 632 uh AD. Okay. This is the life of Muhammad. Six centuries after Christ. Six centuries after Christ and they want to tell us that they, that they know our Bible better than we do. Six centuries after Christ and they want to tell us that they know about our textual transmission and our, t- our textual tradition better than the apostolic fathers and the church fathers and Augustine, the Council of Constantinople and everything else. They want to tell us that they know better about our textual transmission than we do. It's preposterous. You guys. Um, I've been studying Islam now for uh, as, almost as long as I've been a Christian. And I can honestly tell you that Islam is an absurd religion. You want to dub that out of the tape, you know, but uh, it is an absurd religion based on absurdities of the most absurd kind. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Let's get into some of that, huh? Let's get into that. Let's get into some of that. I'll leave the date up there so you so it etches in your mind so you always know it's always good to have a timetable in your mind so that when you're talking to Muslims you know where in history you're at, you know, when you're in that conversation. Yes, Patrick. Have one have that that's right the Quran teaches that Muslim men are allowed four wives Muhammad received a very convenient revelation from Allah <laughs> saying that he is allowed to have as many wives as he'd like but the rest of but the rest of you can only have four <laughs> yes And then he even stole his nephew's wife at some point. So, uh, you know, you look at the similarities between Joseph Smith and Muhammad or Mormonism and Islam. It's very strange. Same demonic doctrine, uh, same demonic lies. Golden tablets, all religions are astray. An angel appears to a prophet, a prophetic man. He is given the right to have multiple wives right? He's going to inherit great wealth, and he's going to be a great, you know, uh, he's going to have great power and influence over people. It's all the same. It's exactly what the devil did when Jesus was here. I can show you the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me, right? Well, these men worshiped Satan, in a sense, uh, but Jesus did not, because he's the son of God, amen? So, okay, let's get into something that's really important here for understanding Islam, and that is... If there's one thing that I would say about Islam, is that Islam gives us nothing new. (laughs) There's nothing new in Islam. Much of what you find in the religion of peace right now goes back to some correspondence to pre-Islamic Arabia and pre-Islamic times. In pre-Islamic Arabia, you had Mecca, very important now. Mecca as the center of civilization in the Arabian desert. As a matter of fact, Mecca was the center point of all uh, uh, desert trade and commerce. Everything ran to Mecca. And because Mecca was this metropolis where all of these trade routes really uh, met, um, the Arabian people decided to build a, uh, to build something like an interfaith shrine at Mecca. Because think about it, you have all these caravans, all these traders, you have all this commerce going on in, in, in in the desert. People are coming from this tradition and that tradition and they, 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 they venerate this god and that god. So in Mecca, they erected a shrine which came to be known as the Kaaba. The Kaaba is the Arabic word for cube. And at this shrine, hundreds of deities were venerated. Um, I even remember what the books say. 360-some-odd deities were venerated in Mecca by the polytheists, by the polytheists, okay? And so Muhammad was born into this context, and his upbringing was in one tribe among hundreds of tribes that were in existence at that time. His particular tribe was known as the Kwarish tribe. There we go, the Quarish man. That's an R. Sorry, the Quarish tribe or some. You might read it by different people. They might put Quarishi. Okay, whatever. The Quarish tribe. That is where that. This is where Muhammad was um, um, uh, raised in the Quarishi tribe, and their choice, their the god that they chose to to venerate was known to them by the name of. Allah. Allah is an h- Arabic term, and it's a compound of two Arabic words, uh, il uh, and uh, ilat. Il ilat. Through frequency of use, it ultimately compounded and became Allah. They dropped the lot. Okay, but il ilat is the most primitive findings that you find. Encyclopedia Britannica, Encyclopedia of Islam, the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature, all of them attest to this fact, that there was found inscriptions pr- way prior to Muhammad being on the scene of Il-Ilat, and that through use, it became the compound Allah. Um, this is what they used to venerate. This is what they, so he was born into this pagan culture, Muhammad was, and uh, way back in the year, but um, well, let me try to get this, um, way back in the early uh, 7th century, so you're talking about, <coughs> uh, where did I write that down, I wrote it down. His first revelation in, I think it's 612. In 612, Muhammad received at the age of, I think he was 50 or something like that, or 42, was it 42? Okay, 42, thank you. Wow, I'm glad you can add because I can't. But he received his initial revelation at Mount Hira, in the Arabian Desert, and he was given a revelation supposedly by the angel uh, by the name of Jabril. Any idea who that is? That's right, same angel that supposedly appeared to Joseph Smith. According to Muslim, uh, Mormon tradition, it was Gabriel who appeared to Joseph Smith. Well, guess what? It was Jibril who appeared to Muhammad. And the whole issue behind this revelation is that, and this is tied into part of Muhammad's uh, prophethood, okay, is that how many of you know that Muhammad could not read or write, right? It's called the illiteracy of the prophet, right? And that is actually part and parcel of the miracle of Islam, that this, wor- this, this letterless prophet was able to be uh, given this wondrous revelation of the Quran. And so when the angel showed up to Muhammad at Mount Hira, he told Muhammad, he told him to recite something, recite something this, and he told him repeatedly, recite, he would, pressed on his chest, this is according to Islamic tradition, his, he pressed on him and pressed on him until he finally recited something, even after saying, I can't read, I can't write, I can't, I'm illiterate, okay, and that that was a sign, a miracle of Muhammad. Muhammad doesn't part the sea, Muhammad does not, he doesn't walk on water, Muhammad doesn't raise the dead, he doesn't heal anybody. Muslims actually believe that miracles are not necessary for Muslim, for Islam because what they say is that um, it was the miracles in the Bible that were not believed among the people. Therefore, Allah did not send Muhammad with miracles. Instead, he sent him with the miracle of the Quran. That's essentially what they teach. The miracle of the Quran. Um, But this is is where Muhammad was born. He was born into these pre-Islamic times and emerging out of this period of time was a context. Everything that Islam does today in one way or another can be traced back to pre-Islamic times. How many of you have heard of the Hajj? The hajj is what? The pilgrimage. the pilgrimage that Muslims have to do when? <coughs> One time in their life. Once in their life, they must go to Mecca and perform the, the hajj. They have to go to Mecca and perform various rituals when they get there. They don't just go there. They go there and around the Kaaba, the cube, remember, where all the deities used to be. Muhammad eventually drove out all the pagans, all the polytheists, and he put one deity there, and that was Allah, right? The deity of his upbringing, basically. And um, when Muslims go to Mecca, they circle the Kaaba seven times as a ritual. Sometimes you can see video of this, where they're walking around the Kaaba and they're hurling stones at the Kaaba. They're hurling stones as a symbol of casting stones at the devil. Okay, well, all you have to do is read what were the polytheists doing in pre-Islamic times. Lo and behold, they were performing a pilgrimage, they were circling the Kaaba, and they would throw stones at the devil. (laughs) so wonder where Muhammad got this idea that that's what you do. It wasn't revealed from God to do it. He picked it up from his culture. He picked it up from his environment. Yes, sir. Right. Um, 90%, maybe 99% of Muslims won't want to talk to you about that because they don't know anything about it. Um, and then on top of that, um, if they do, they would say something like, yes, the polytheists were misguided, just like the Jews and Christians. It's not that they have everything wrong, right? Uh, they, the Jews and Christians do some things right, you know, they acknowledge Abraham as a prophet, Moses as a prophet. Those things are good. The Muslims would say, we would agree, but we have come to teach them <laughs> the right way, the true way to purify their, their religion, right? And uh, that's probably what they would say about pre-Islamic culture, is that we came to give the true way of, of Allah. And uh, the polytheists had a semblance of it, but ultimately they were misguided. And we're here to guide them to the truth, you know. You're lucky if you get that answer. This is the maddening thing at times with even engaging Muslims is they don't know much about Islam. It's very sad. Yes, sir. It's just a ritual. Yeah, I know, right? It's a, it's a ritual. They're they're not throwing stones at Allah, but. Uh, and and th- the Kaaba doesn't represent Allah; it is the place where Allah is venerated. And as a matter of fact, inside the Kaaba, there is a little black let's paint let's paint it little black sacred stone that Muhammad taught had come down out of heaven as a sign from Allah. Well, you know, <laughs> historians believe it's a meteor. And according according to why is it black? Well, according to a Muslim, some Muslim tradition, the stone originally came down white and uh, became black as a symbol of the, 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 the stone represented the sins of the people, the sins that God wanted to take away from the people. They have all these superstitions. Why does the Quran talk about the jinn? The jinn. It's where we get the idea of a genie, remember? Well, the jinn was in existence in pre-Islamic times. There's no question about it. The way you bathe, the way that you wash, everything, um, your garments, the way they clothe themselves, all of these issues go back to pre-Islamic times. Nothing new in Islam. There's nothing new. Yes, sir? So it's fair to say that Islam is a syncretistic religion? Oh, boy. I, I don't think it's fair to say that. I think it's accurate to say that. That's what it is. That's not what Muslims want to hear. <laughs> you know? That is what it is, so... Um, last question, Crystal, because I'm already out of time. See how fast the time goes? I mean... Many of them did. So he just got mm-hmm. A lot of that goes back to even to Persian culture. Oh. You know what I mean? Um yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes ma'am. Mm-hmm. So Said that was the last one, but uh, how can I deny, how can I say no to you? <laughs> <laughs> so what do they do with creation and do they have a problem with Islam not, not existing prior to, um, you know? Muhammad? No, 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 prior to that flight when you we were talking about hijrah. Uh, Yeah, the Hijra. Do, um, do they have a problem with it not existing before that? Okay, so, uh, so Amanda asked a very important question. Do Muslims have a problem not existing prior to the Hijra? No, they don't. Matter of fact, they believe that Adam was a Muslim, Abraham was a Muslim. Matter of fact, they believe that it was Adam who originally built the Kaaba and that throughout the history of humanity, the Kaaba has suffered uh, under the hands of man. It has been destroyed several times and rebuilt several times. Um, So no, they would say that Abraham was a Muslim. So... (laughs) what's that but they don't have any kind of, record. of course not no they try to force their way in there you know what i mean and uh they try to say they try to ground themselves in the abrahamic tradition by saying that they're descendants of ishmael and that in some muslim literature it was actually ishmael who was sacrificed uh, uh, who was going to be sacrificed not isaac so it's a rewriting it's a complete um what's that word i'm looking for it's a total revision of history, a revisionist approach to history, and uh, this is what I'm saying. It's just maddening when you just start getting like, why do they believe any of this? You know, and um, I would I would submit to you folks that Islam has more to do with culture than it does with scholarship, historical investigation, theology. It's everything to do with culture. And uh, that's why Muslims feel obligated to believe what they believe. God bless you. Let's go worship.